This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, man, oh man, oh man, we are living in and through an extraordinary time right now. Unprecedented in so many ways. Blair Manton, <laughs> how are things going on your end? Well, I think, you know, if we were saying things are going absolutely swimmingly, we wouldn't be accurate because, you know, just everybody these days, we've never lived through anything like this and hopefully we don't have to face it again. Um, you know, from our perspective, it's definitely been a challenging uh, period of time since, you know, essentially a lot of things have shut down. Uh, but, you know, the message to listeners out there is we're here for you. We're still fully operational and we've made a bunch of changes to our operations, um, Elaine. So it's, it's really helping us to, you know, deal with a lot of the uncertainty, a lot of the challenges people are facing. We're getting call volumes like we've never seen before in these past few weeks and months now. I bet you have. Do you want to talk about some of the changes that you've made? Uh, like, can people still come into your office or how have you organized that? Yeah, I'm really happy to talk about the, the changes that we have made. So what we've had to do, and, you know, everything, I think a lot of businesses have taken a bit of a phased approach. So, you know, we started by, okay, first we're not going to shake hands, and then we're going to try to keep, you know, social distancing. We had to make the decision uh, around mid-March or so to close all the offices to walk-in traffic. Um, so all of our offices, you know, if you go there now, there's a notice on the door saying, you know, please visit us online, or you can come to us in our Surrey office if there's something imperative that you have to drop off, like a payment or a document. But what's happened in the meantime is, is the government has relaxed some of the very old-style, uh, archaic regulations that required that everybody that sees a trustee has to meet face-to-face. -face. And you can imagine in this type of an environment, Elena, asking somebody to come in and meet a trustee face-to-face -to, -face to deal with a debt problem, uh, it's just not right to put themselves or perhaps our staff at risk. So the government has relaxed that requirement. So what we've been doing um, since about mid-March now is we're seeing 100% of our clients either online through video conference or over the telephone. Uh, and we've actually developed a in-house electronic signature platform uh, that we're able to video conference, we're able to sign all the documents electronically. So I've had a number of clients say, you know, even if I could have come in to see you in person, this is more efficient. I don't need to go out of my house. I don't need to pay for gas or parking or bridges. Um, I can just come in, get, or I can you know, go online, get the advice that I need, and we're able to react that much more quickly. So the pandemic's been very difficult for a lot of industries, but what it's done for the insolvency industry is it's jumped us to the 21st century, which was far overdue. That's so interesting, especially uh, when rules were changed uh, so that you could continue to do business. Like, I love that, that, that government was willing to be a little bit flexible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I've got to say, I've, I hold some pride as a, as a Canadian here and, you know, how quickly and, you know, smartly I think the government has responded. Not everything they've done is, is you know, perfect, but at least they've made a lot of efforts. And our regulator is no different. They realize, you know, very much uh, fr from the start here that, you know, the need for debt help is not going to go away during this pandemic. If anything, it's going to increase. And, you know, we're just having a lot of people who are at home, maybe they're off work, and the mind races and you just don't know what's going on. This is when you need debt help more than ever. And I think our regulator really 
saw, well, you can't, you know, expect trustees or their staff or the clients to start to put themselves literally in mortal danger if, if we're going to have to come in for a face-to-face meeting. Um, so they've said, you know, this is a temporary type of a, a relaxation of the rules. Uh, most trustees that I speak to, we don't see how we would ever go back, um, you know, to forcing everybody physically to be in our presence when a video conference, electronic signature, you can achieve the same type of thing. Uh, and sometimes there's even some better benefits. You can do a screen share and it's very clear, you know, what you're pointing at and things like that. So um, they, we found it just to be a revelation in how we can help clients now. Now, we know that um, things weren't going super well for everyone prior to this situation. Uh, you saw increases in consumer uh, consumer debt, and of course, now it's going to be even worse or potentially even worse. So um, let's talk about how you're helping people, not the physical stuff, but what's the kinds of things that you're telling people now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Elaine, in that it wasn't the case the Canadian consumer was in great shape and, you know, this is just a little chink in the armor. No, the Canadian consumer was actually having a very, very tough time, you know, to the point, I believe we talked on a previous show, that in the month of July 2019 or July 2020, there was a 35% increase year over year from July 2019 to 20 in the number of people filing for bankruptcies or making proposals in the province of BC, and that's well before this pandemic ever hit. So a lot of people have been overextended. You know, as of now, the volumes are a little bit down because, you know, a lot of people, they're uncertain. They're not sure about what their income is and what they can do. Um, but we expect, you know, once things start to return to some normalcy, uh, I would anticipate probably the volumes are going to double across Canada, if not more. Um, in the short term, the type of information that we're given to people, you know, a lot of it is just, you know, having the time to sit down, to empathize, to understand what's going on. But there are some really key things that we want to communicate. And, you know, the number one thing for people, and I think a lot of people are keeping up on this, is just to stay informed and stay aware. So things are changing so rapidly right now. Um, you know, the government and the province are coming out with new programs. It seems just about every week or so are making tweaks to existing programs. Um, so for me to give an outline of the programs now, it may be out of, out of date by the time this airs. So what we recommend to people here is, you know, you go to the the reputable Canadian websites, you go to Canada.ca for federal announcements, you go to gov.bc.ca for provincial announcements, um, but also be very careful about scams because uh, the immoral amongst us, they have not taken any time off. So I've had people call me and say, you know, this uh, loan small business loan program, it seems like it's a, it's a bit different than what the government's outlining. I'm saying, well, yes, you're, you're actually being scammed right now. Don't give them any personal information. Uh, I've seen some outbound calls where someone has said, you know, we'll be, your, uh, we'll be your agent to get you access to these federal funds, but all we need is your social insurance number, your business number, your mother's maiden name, different things like that. It's just a clear, transparent attempt at identity theft. So stay informed, stay aware, uh, and just, you know, keep your skepticism hat on as well. Excellent. Now, I know you've sort of adopted uh, some of the ideas that Dr. Bonnie Henry has been talking about in terms of just keeping calm here. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's right. And again, Dr. Henry is just such an inspiring figure now, and, and she definitely you know creates a lot of confidence among the population. And I really love it when she says, you know, this is not forever, but it is for now. And it's just so important, you know, that we, we do realize that all this is going to pass. So what I'm advising my clients, you know, it's a little bit of a throwback to, you know, England during the, the Second World War here is just to keep calm and carry on. You know, don't make any panic decisions. Don't do any panic buying or selling. Don't start liquidating your assets. Don't start redeeming your RRSPs. It's probably the case that decisions you're going to make in haste right now are not going to be the right decisions when you look at them in the cold light of day. 
um, you know, one thing that I've been telling people, and, you know, a lot of people don't know this, and it comes as a little bit of a relief and a godsend in some cases, is there's very little that creditors can do to you at the current time, because at this time, courts across Canada are closed. What that means is that you can't be sued for payments on your debts. So if someone is a long-term listener to this program, they would have heard us say, okay, well, there's a statute of limitations, there's two years. Um, If someone doesn't sue you for your debt after two years, it goes away. Well, the government has suspended that statute of limitations. So it's not that, you know, creditors are any worse off. It's just essentially there's a ceasefire. No one can take a legal action against you to force to force you to pay the debts at this time until the courts are reopened. So for someone that's thinking they need to act in haste because the government's going to be coming for their house or for their wages, uh, sorry, because a creditor is going to come for their house or for their wages, that just can't happen right now with the courts being closed. Okay. And and you always mention credit ratings, what people should be paying attention to, and that's possibly not something to worry about right now. Yeah, I, I think in the short term, I get these questions a lot, you know, well, what about my credit rating? If I don't have enough money to go around after I paid rent, groceries, and so on and so forth, something's going to take a hit. And I just tell people, well, you've got to decide what's important to you at this point in time. And that's ad- addressing all of your necessities, all the important things, the rent, the food, the shelter, so on and so forth. You know, at that point, if you don't have money for debt payments, you know, your best bet, we're going to talk about this in a little while, is to talk about, you know, potentially contacting your creditors. But you do need to accept that if you're not able to make payments, the credit the credit rating could take a hit in the short term, um, but really it's nothing that you can't recover from. People go from a bankruptcy to fully recovered credit getting a mortgage you know, in the space of a couple of years. So if you have to miss a few payments during this downturn, um, you know, first off, I think creditors would be pretty understanding about that when they're looking at you and saying, well, you missed a few payments during the pandemic. I wonder why. Um, but I would encourage you not to focus on the credit rating in the short term. I wouldn't even be checking it. I'd be more focused on do I have enough money to meet my expenses every month? Um, Uh, Am I able to honor those obligations first? Okay. And what if you're not? What if you're not able to, uh, to honor those obligations? What's the kind of good action that we should be taking? Yeah, and that segues just perfectly into our third piece of advice, which is to take action, but make sure it's the right action. So the number one thing to do uh, is to communicate with your creditors. So to anyone that you're not going to be able to make your regular payments, you know, don't be afraid to ask for a deferral on your rent, on your mortgage, on your debt payments or otherwise, even if your financial institution hasn't publicly said, you know, hey, we're willing to help. And some banks have been better than others. You know, I've heard Van City is doing deferrals sometimes with no additional interest charges. You'd want to check that out. Uh, a lot of other banks, they're saying, yeah, we'll defer the payment, but the interest still accumulates and the interest on interest accumulates. Um, so there is the case that that balance would still have to be paid a little bit later on. Um, both of the credit bureaus are giving free access to online credit reports. So if you're not sure about your obligations, or I said before, don't worry about the credit rating, that's true. But if you're just not sure who you actually owe, uh, the pandemic has Uh, led Equifax and TransUnion to give free online access to credit reports now. So if you go to their websites, you can get your credit report if you're not sure about who you owe and who you should be contacting to. Um, I think the number one thing, you know, the actual action people can take other than contacting their creditors is really an action that everybody should be doing as a matter of course, and that's to make sure you don't bank where you owe money. And the reason for that is, as I said before, courts are closed, so you can't be sued if you miss payments on your debts and they're going to try to take your wages. That's going to have to wait until the courts reopen. But if you owe Bank A some money 
and you have a bank account with Bank A also, they have the right to come into your account and take whatever is required to satisfy the obligation that you've missed. So that could happen, you know, right when you're about to deposit your paycheck, right when you're about to pay your rent. It can be a very inopportune time. So I recommend to anybody out there, if you think you will be missing some payments or you know, even not at the best practice, is to set up a new bank account where you don't have any debt and just make sure your income is always protected there. Literally, that money couldn't be touched until the courts are reopened. Um, and that's going to take months from now. I know you've also included in, in this particular segment about what the action you can take is, is about how you, and I think this is important at any given time, is how you talk to yourself about being a little bit forgiving of yourself. Because I know, boy, oh boy, it's so easy to get down and uh, being angry or being ashamed or being embarrassed uh, falls right into that same category about kindness. Exactly. So, you know, we say it, be kind to yourself. You know, just imagine if it was someone you really, really cared about and they did what you've done, you probably wouldn't judge them as harshly as you, as you judge yourself. So, you know, this is not a time to really be ashamed or beat yourself up. You didn't have savings. You could have been better prepared. You know, you could have had more of an emergency fund. Yes, those things may be true, but there's not a whole lot's going to be gained from really dwelling on that. It's all, what are the right actions to take now? You know, put your energy into contacting your creditors, communicating, changing the bank account if you need to, and then getting the good advice to know what you can do to deal with your debts. So, you know, reach out for help. I know we're almost at the end of our segment here, but uh, Elaine, anybody that's listening, if you're unsure about, you know, what your financial options are, if you're just feeling a lot of uncertainty right now, uh, we're doing nothing else but answering the phone these days, setting up, you know, video conferences to help people sleep better in respect to their debts. Excellent. And I'll give you two things as we close out. The uh, online address, sans-trustee.com, or the phone number 1-800-661-3030, toll-free in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. You know, it's funny, Blair, amid everything else that's going on, just even people's regular lives, let alone at a crazy, uncertain time, it's also tax time, and we have to pay attention to that. And this segment is all about myths about tax debt, which is probably super good timing uh, for a lot of folks. Um, and I'll just you know, come, some of the stats that you've given me, some of the data you've given me. Revenue Canada Agency states nine out of ten individuals who owe tax pay it on time, but there's a huge number of Canadians that carry tax debt every year, adding up to a huge huge amount of money that's um, outstanding. So let's talk about that. How, um, I know you help people with tax debt and all kinds of debt actually every day, but let's talk specifically about income tax debt and the, the big piece of misinformation that we seem to have on it. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of informa- misinformation about taxes out there. And a lot of us, too, we've got, you know, whether it's a block or there's just this huge anxiety, but it's this feeling that, you know, okay, I can kind of understand the banks a little bit. Maybe you know, there's a bit of a power imbalance, but it's not that crazy. But as soon as we start to talk about the government, you know, people have these conceptions of, oh, my God, people will be showing up in the middle of the night, carting my furniture away, uh, you know, removing my kids from my custody if I don't deal with my government obligations the right way. So, you know, people have a very deep-seated fear or not many, not all people, but some people certainly that I deal with have a very deep-seated fear of, you know, the government as a creditor amongst all others, and they just think that sometimes there's nothing you can do about 
when you owe the government money. So that's the number one myth. It's just that you're powerless, that there's nothing you can do if you owe the government money. There's that assessment that needs to get paid um, come hell or high water, and there's nothing else that can be done. And that's an absolute falsehood. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to uh, address, I think, four or five key myths here, depending on the time, uh, about what you can actually do to deal with tax debt, uh, and hopefully leaving listeners with the view that, you know, yeah, it's not fun to owe the government money, but they're not that appreciably different than every other creditor that you have. Okay, so the number one myth is incorporating fully protects business owners. So that's not true. That's not true. So I deal with a number of individuals who might be self-employed or have small businesses. And, you know, a lot of them are are incorporated and some of them aren't. And, you know, the reason why you incorporate a business and what that means is you've set up a separate legal entity for the business. So myself as a trustee, I could be a sole proprietor with Blair Manton Trustee Corp, uh, or I'm part of a corporation of Sands and Associates. So it's a separate legal entity that's the business. Now, theoretically, it's a separate legal person. It's got its own obligations, its own um, assets and things like that. But what happens is if that corporation starts to owe the government money, the people behind the corporation, so there's not the shareholders, so the shareholders own the basically the stock in the company, but there are the directors. So every corporation has to have at least one director, and a lot of big corporations have you know a board of maybe 10 or 15 directors, but those are the people that actually manage and direct the corporation on a day-to-day basis. What happens is if the corporation builds up a tax debt, now it's not for all types of, te- of tax debt, but some really important ones, so for GST, so for amount If you're selling a good or a service, you've got to hold back 5% and remit it to the government. If the business builds up a GST debt that it doesn't pay, the directors are personally liable for that debt, dollar for dollar. Uh, Same thing whether it's source deduction debt. So if you have employees, you're paying the employees, but you have to hold back for Canada income tax, uh, Canada pension plan, EI, things like that. Uh, If you don't remit those amounts to the government, the business doesn't pay them, the directors become personally liable. Um, There's also some other obligations. If the government says, hey, we're owed money by one of your employees, we want you to send us their wages. And if you as the director don't make sure that happens, you can be personally liable for that as well. The biggest ones that I see are often people start up a small corporation. They're not sure of their obligations. Maybe they didn't register for GST until a few years in. And then suddenly the government has assessed them with a large amount owing for GST. And they phone me up and say, okay, I've got this business. This business owes some GST. So I could just bankrupt the business and everything would be fine. And I say, well, you could bankrupt the business if you chose to, but you would be no better off personally because that is a director liability. So if a business owes GST or if it owes source deductions, those amounts are owed by the directors dollar for dollar. And that's really important for directors to know as well, because if it is a situation where the business is shutting down, there's only so much money to go around to pay, not enough to pay everybody in full. It's important for directors to know, well, what are my director liabilities like source deductions, like GST, and try to treat those on a priority basis if possible. Wow, sounds like a lot of information. It's something you certainly don't enter into lightly. And talk to somebody who knows, talk to a professional, talk to somebody like yourself to figure that out. I mean, I would suggest, I mean, I would ask the question, is that something that I could do before I enter in, in into an agreement like this? Yeah, so you definitely want to make sure if you're incorporating a business that you understand all this ahead of time, uh, because, you know, it's too late once you've already incurred the obligation. And sometimes the reason people incorporate is because they think they're creating this great separation, this limitation of liability, which they are in some cases, but they need to understand it's not going to do it for government amounts. And that might actually remove the reason for them incorporating, because having an incorporated business is more expensive than having a proprietorship. So sometimes the protections people think they get by incorporating, they don't actually get with respect to the government. 
And I was thinking about if somebody asked you to be a director with them in their small business, that you need to figure all of that out before you say yes. Oh, you're absolutely right, Elaine. And and I've seen that happen where, you know, a family member might sign on to a business, not monitor closely what's happening. And then six months later, there's $50,000 of source deduction debt that didn't get paid. They were a director the whole time. And now they're joint and severally liable for that, even if they were never involved in the business at all. Yeah. See, that's what I was thinking that, yeah, you'd be you'd be in serious trouble. Yeah, so signing on as a director is a big, big deal. You know, having shares, being a shareholder, not the same thing. You know, you or I could buy shares in any company that's publicly traded. It doesn't mean we have any liability. If that company doesn't operate correctly, the directors have the liability. Okay, let's let's go to the second myth because I think that's all we're going to have time for in this segment. Mm-hmm. And that's so much that to talk ta- about. Yeah. I know there's a lot yeah. of it's it's complicated. Lots of intricacies in each of these topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Tax debt can expire, um, and that- so it it doesn't. It never does. Right. It never does. There is no statute of limitations for tax debt. If you leave the country, come back in 20 years, the tax debt is still going to be waiting for you. Uh, you know, if you go off grid, and don't file taxes for 10 years. Trust me, I've seen both of these strategies. The tax debt is still waiting for you. So it's non-government debts, things like credit cards, um, you know, lines of credit, things like that. Those have a two-year statute of limitations. Government debt, there's no limitation period at all. You owe that money until you deal with it or until you pay it off. And you can deal with it with a trustee through either a bankruptcy or a proposal. And that's what's something that people a lot of people don't know they can feel they're powerless a trustee can help okay well that is good that and that that is really good information and do you want to touch on the third one that only employment income is seizable yeah, I guess just letting people know that when we talk about creditors, you know, generally, if you're going to be sued for your debts, you know, a creditor can only take your employment income. But if it's the government, they've got extra ways to collect. So they could go directly if you're self-employed, they can go to your clients and say any clients that owe you money, they have to pay the government uh, completely 100% of that money, where other creditors would have to convince a judge, hey, I need this person's pension more than he does or she does. Uh, the government can take 100% of your CPP, your OAS without having any regard to where that leaves you. So they've got extra collection powers that other creditors don't have, and they're not required to go to court to enforce those. They can basically happen with little notice to you. Now, do they happen overnight? No. Typically, there's a long lead up to them, uh, but you'd be surprised sometimes with how little notice there can be in some situations. Okay. And then the fourth one, we can touch on it. You can't have a tax debt forgiven. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely false. Two ways we can help with that. So one is to make a consumer proposal and generally nine and a half times out of 10 consumer proposals get accepted. That's where you make a deal with the government, say they want $50,000 back plus interest and penalties. And you say, well, what I can afford to pay you back is $20,000. We're going to do that over a period of three to five years. That's a proposal and it's almost always successful. If that's not even possible, paying off, you know, 20 to 40% of the debt, a personal bankruptcy will discharge the debt, get you back to owing nobody anything and starting again. And we've covered a lot of information in this segment for sure. And I, I just want to remind listeners too that you can go to the website sans-trustee.com and it's chock-a-block full of good questions and really good answers. And then your next step, and it's an easy one, is giving them a call. And that phone number is 1-800-661-3030 and get that free consultation. They're completely set up to uh, service you in any way that you need in order to get your questions answered. You're listening to Dollars and Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
And on the line with us, Steve Soretsky, Vancouver realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs, uh, considered a real leader in the industry in terms of how he thinks about these things. He's uh, a media guy. He's on BNN, CBC, of course, CKNW, CTV, a regular contributor to the BC Business Magazine as well. So, and the other thing that Steve's really good at is analyzing the stats, looking at this landscape of real estate and policies uh, and how it affects Vancouver real estate and the lower mainland. And Steve, I got to say, this is a pretty um, interesting time for so many industries and so many businesses and real estate. I mean, it's it's in that category, too, because we've had, you know, a market that's sort of it's been pretty unpredictable in so many ways. And now I'm hoping that uh, in this segment, you can help us make some sense out of it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I'm happy to uh, happy to be on. So thanks for having me on. It's uh, yeah, crazy times. But um, yeah, let's, let's, let's have at it. Yeah, I was going to say, so Steve, you know, normally when we do these segments, you know, we try not to date them because, you know, it's information that could be useful in the future. I think just given now, you know, we're recording this end of April, early May of 2020 here. So getting a sense of what's the current state of the housing market, you know, I think someone something that's it's really unprecedented circumstances that we're living through and you with your finger on the pulse here. So how would you come at that and say, well, what's the current state? What's going on in the market in the lower mainland Vancouver these days? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so I'm actually just kind of to get an update here. So we're obviously end of the month, April. Uh, it looks like for for April, we should see sales volumes down 40% on a year-over-year basis. So when you compare April 2020 uh, to last April 2019, so sales will be down 40% from last year's volumes. I mean, it, it's not, you know. The number of sales, not the dollar values, I assume, right? Yes, correct. This is the number of transactions. Um, but so, you know, on the surface, you know, you look at that number and say, well, that's not that bad considering, you know, everything was shut down and, you know, everyone's, you know, freaked out and all this and that. But, you know, when you kind of start to peel back the numbers a little bit further, you have to keep in mind that April of 2019 was our slowest April since the year 2000. So, um, oh, really? basically, wow. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have about 1,100 sales across Greater Vancouver this month. Um, so that will be obviously an all-time low. Um but, I mean, I think that was to be expected. I think we were all expecting that. Uh, but on the flip side, you also had new listings um, drop off a cliff as well. So new listings for the month um, were down about anywhere between 60 to 65% uh, from last year's volume. So basically sellers obviously very hesitant to have people to their homes, um, you know, get, you know with, given what's happening right now. And how is that actually working for, for sales of real estate? So are people having open houses? Is it more virtual? Is it, you know, one family at a time through? What's the, what's the mechanics on the day-to-day? I'm curious. Um, yeah, so basically uh, right now, um, no open houses. That's like a, that's a mandate um, from, from the government. So in terms of showings, it's, it's kind of a weird, tricky process where, you know, people are making you sign disclosures saying, you know, you haven't been, traveling for the last couple of weeks, you know, you're not, you know, admitting any sort of symptoms. And then a lot of them are asking you to put on, you know, mask and gloves and not to touch anything. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at today. So it definitely makes it a little bit more challenging to sell a place because usually like, what you do is, you know, pre-virus, the market was obviously quite hot. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd put a condo up for sale on Monday, you'd have a couple open houses on the weekend and you'd take offers, you know, uh, you know, the following Monday, um, you, you, you know, you'd funnel 50 people through at a time and get it all done. And, and obviously now it's, uh, 
you know, the number of people coming through is way down and um, it's more of a private showing um, process. But they've got to be pretty serious buyers. Would you agree, Steve, if you're going to go through all of that effort, uh, rigmarole to get in the door to see the place? Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of like a mutual like understanding. It's like, you know, like as a realtor, like obviously we, we ourselves want to be safe. Like, you know, yes, this yeah. is our, our our way of life and of making money. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, you know, you don't want to be showing a bunch of people that are just kind of like browsing the market because, you know, mm-hmm. it's, this is just not the time to do that. So, yes, most of buyers that are out there looking right now that are actually setting up showings, they're obviously serious buyers um, for the most part. And so, you know, that kind of helps things, I guess, a little bit. Hey, Steve, are there any segments of the market that are, you know, operating a little bit differently than others? You know, we've heard for a long time the condo market was quite strong because a lot of people were priced out of single family homes. Uh, is it just it's pretty slow across the board right now? That's basically things are, are just, you know, kind of in a standstill almost, you know, until until we start to come out of this a bit? Yeah, that's no, a good question. I mean, I think like always, it's you know, it's definitely a market that the trend has been over the last 18 months, it's become like a more price sensitive market. And I think like, I mean, we're only a month into this sort of shutdown sort of thing. Um, and I would say that, that yes, it's, it's still very much like a price sensitive market. It's like a luxury market. It's just, you know, it's, I, I mean, I wouldn't say completely dead, but basically dead. Um, and then, you know, you still have some decent traction where like, Hey, if you have a house in East Vancouver with the basement suite, you know, price of that sweet spot, which is kind of under, you know, 1.7 million, like, you know, that's still getting some, some decent traction and, and same thing, you know, a one bedroom condo under 600,000 in the city, like, you know, there's, there's still some decent traction. Yes. It's not, you know, getting multiple offers per se. It's maybe taking a little bit longer to sell, but you know, there's still, there's still a bid there. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like an illiquid market. Um, you know, if you price it ap- appropriately, um, you know, there's a, there's a buyer there for sure. Right. And Steve, you used the term a little bit earlier, you know, pre-virus, and I think that's going to start to become the vernacular, you know, pre-virus, post-virus, when we're through this and out of it. Um, I wonder what you, as, as your crystal ball, and obviously, you know, if predictions would never hold you to them, but uh, what do you see based on your data over the next, you know, six to 12 months, you know, assuming there is a return to normalcy, uh, how do you think the market's going to shape up? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I know, like, we talked about this more, like, off-air, but it's... Um you know, unfortunately, you know, whether the virus is here and it comes and goes, it's, it's you know, there's going to be longer term economic ramifications of, of, you know, social distancing and businesses shutting down and being slow to, you know, rehire people. The reality is, is we're going to be stuck with a double digit unemployment rate for the foreseeable future. And I think that's a headwind for housing. And, and you know, some of these dynamics are going to take some time to sort of filter through into the housing market. So, for example, like, we know that delinquency rates are going to increase. We know there's going to be an increase in foreclosures. Like, that's just inevitable. Um, but for right now, you know, people are getting, I mean, there's over 700,000 mortgage deferrals that have been approved. So, you know, once these mortgage deferrals start to expire, I think that's going to force people that were maybe able to hold out. It's going to force some of them onto the market, and they're going to have to sell. So I suspect that, you know, we'll probably see, you know, at least a bump in, in inventory from where we are today. And um, so I think that those dynamics are still going to play out. So I think that, you know, the outlook for the housing market here over the next 12 months uh, does look pretty sluggish. 
Hmm. So if there's, you know, an oversupply of people having to sell or some foreclosures, I would expect some downward pressure on prices. But uh, yeah, again, who knows? People have been predicting Vancouver real estate to go down for quite some time, but maybe this could be um, a slight correction or, or something bigger than that. Uh, you know, anecdotally, what I've seen, you know, just on Twitter or different things like that is, yeah, it seems like some really high-end properties, you know, the West Van uh, mansions, some of those, when they need to sell, they're going for quite a bit less than what they were originally listed for. So it seems the higher end, to your point, is, is, is definitely pretty quiet. Uh, but to your point earlier, there's also some some deals to be had, you know, in, in the single family or in the, the condos under a certain price point in the right area. Uh, you mentioned foreclosures there, Steve. So do you think we're going to see a, a higher bump in those as the, the mortgage deferral? So 700,000 people, that's a huge number, you know, in a proportion of Canada's population. We're, what, 33 million? So almost, you know, a million people of our whole population looking to defer their mortgages. That's big. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a big number. And there's a couple, you know, there's varying dynamics behind that. Like, uh, we know that the reality is, is the, the private lending space, for example, has been a large component of our housing market. And that's because when you have, you know, a, a bull market for basically 20 years is, you know, um, you start to get people thinking it's kind of a one-way bet. And, and obviously private lenders um, have done very, very well in that environment. So people, you know, leveraging up to sort of, get into the housing market or to prolong delinquency. So um, Steve, just for, for our listeners there, when you say a private lender, so that's not one of the big banks, what, what would that be? Yeah. So it'd be like, uh, whether that's through say a mortgage investment corporation, so like a group of uh, private investors, essentially people that have a bunch of money to basically invest. Um, and they decide to basically um, create sort of a corporation essentially. And they'll basically lend out their own funds um, to borrowers that basically can't get approved at traditional banks. So these are typically more, um, la- you know, less credit-worthy individuals. Um, you know, some people might call it like shadow banking. But anyways, the Bank of Canada, uh, you know, their estimates suggest that, you know, private lending or the shadow banking system um, makes up about 10 to 12% of new mortgage originations in the city of Vancouver and in the city of Toronto. Um, wow, that's, so that's, that's a, big, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's a huge portion of the market that, you know, these are, we're talking about first first mortgage rates. You know, if you're for making a first mortgage, you're probably looking at, you know, an interest rate of about 6 to 7%. And you're looking, you know, if you want a second mortgage from one of these guys, you're probably looking at about 12%. So, you know, right. these and are that, high. That compares, you know, I know your finger's on the pulse, but, you know, someone going through a regular bank now, you know, it, it's closer in the low single digits, right? Yeah, so I mean, if you go to you know a traditional big bank, RBC, TD, whatever, you're probably looking at a five-year mortgage at two point six percent. So um, significantly more so, expensive the private money then, yeah. Yeah, exactly, and there obviously you know there's there's a the increase in 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 the rates is there because there there's obviously a perceived risk and a less creditworthy borrower, et cetera. So um, I think that this is a little bit more concerning, obviously, as we you know, people come under stress and, and, you know, what's their ability to service these high interest rate mortgages. I mean, usually the reality is, is most people that take on these private loans, there's an ex the exit plan usually is like, I'm going to have this loan for one year. And then I'm hopefully that either my income is going to go up or the property value is going to go up and I'm going to refinance into a traditional mortgage with one of the big banks and, you know, lower my interest rate. So it creates the problem when, well, what if the market doesn't go up? What if it actually comes down a little bit? Uh, well, then it makes refinancing that debt basically impossible. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm, I'm more concerned more about these sort of, you know, fringe borrowers, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I guess your view then to the rising foreclosures, they could impact the the housing market, and it sounds like the the private lenders, you know, if that's ten to twelve percent of the of the market in in the major centers here. You know, they could be at risk then. Yeah, exactly, and I think that um, you know what's we had you know, mortgage delinquencies or foreclosures, I should say, um, those were, those hit basically record lows in, in, in greater Vancouver in, uh, 2018, they started rising off that, uh, low base over the last year and a half. So we've slowly started to see foreclosures actually slowly rising. And most of those foreclosures that were coming on the market were from, um, these private lenders, um, because, you know, particularly in the higher end of the market where that, you know, some of those prices dropped 30, 35%, um, you know, that forced um, some delinquencies in that space. So I suspect that that's just basically going to be a, uh, a more of a ramp up and a continuation that we'll see more delinquencies, particularly in that uh, in that space. We've been talking with Steve Soretsky, Vancouver realtor and author behind one of Vancouver's most popular real estate blogs. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Mark Fidget. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network. He's been on the show before, and he's got so much good information for us. He's been licensed for 26 years in the mortgage industry and what we're calling the driver behind, www.advancedequity.ca. That's the website. Now, we've talked about this number in, a, in, a, in an earlier or in another segment, Mark, but I think it's so important, and it fits nicely with this refinancing during these really crazy, unprecedented time that we're all living in is that as of April, the end of April, like the 22nd, um, the, the statistic was 710,000 mortgages in this country have been deferred, which is an extraordinary number. Um, I, I can't imagine that either one of you ever thought that you'd hear that. Well, I sure didn't. And, and I think it really goes to show how tight the you know the population is in terms of you know their month to month debts and being able to pay things. Mm-hmm. Just just so much leverage out there, right, Mark? Just to, you know, people on the knife's edge, they can make the minimums, they can maybe pay a little bit more. Uh, but when a shock to the system happens, you know, uh, without the emergency fund or you know the savings put away, you know, a lot of folks are finding themselves in a tough position. Even just you know with a month's worth of a shutdown or two months or something like that, it can tip a lot of people over the edge. And I think it's just about expectation and people are just expecting that what happened yesterday in terms of being employed is going to continue tomorrow. And this is a perfect example of, you know what, you really never know because this is something that nobody would have predicted. We've never seen in in history. And yet here it is. Yeah, we're, we're living through it. Uh, so I, I know, t- so for today's segment, Mark, we were talking uh, in an earlier segment, you know, about mortgage deferral a little bit more in detail. So if you're a homeowner and you're listening to the show, you'd be thinking, okay, there's a mortgage deferral I can do. Um, but what about if I just need cash out of my home in this environment? I know I've got some equity there. How are things going right now from a refinance? Um, you know, what are the changes? What's the impact if someone is sitting there saying, well, how can I access my equity? What the types of discussions you're having these days? Well, I think the first thing I'm telling everybody is it's not going to happen quickly. I mean, with all the fallout and the job losses, the banks got slammed with simple deferral requests, let alone refinancing. So a, a standard refinance through the bank, is, it can take upwards of a month right now. So it's pretty crazy. So that's the first thing is, number one, is 
people started to fear that it was going to grind to a halt. So um, they've been slammed with the deferrals, and then they've been slammed with people just wondering, you know, is now I should be trying to refinance my mortgage because I may not be able to do it tomorrow. And Mark, when you say refinance, just for our lenders or for our for our listeners, uh, what exactly do we mean when we say re- refinance a mortgage? So that's basically increasing the size of your mortgage. So if you've got a current mortgage, say for three hundred thousand, and you've decided for whatever reason, maybe I want to do a renovation or I need some extra cash to pay off some bills and consolidate, you're now increasing that mortgage to the amount that you want extra. So if you want to add fifty thousand on there, that's a refinance that's going to increase your mortgage by fifty thousand dollars. Oh, great. Thank you. Now, in so terms of the, uh, you talked about, you know, is it, is it more difficult now? One of the things that we haven't seen before, I mean, we've always, we've always seen the lenders requesting letters of employment, but what's, what's happened now and in view of uh, this pandemic is there's much stricter employment verification guidelines now. So if, if you're not deemed an essential service by the government, the lender isn't only requesting a letter of employment, but they're, they're re- basically requesting confirmation that you won't be laid off, which is, uh, you know, it's, wow. it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that before. So they, they would want you to go to your, your boss or your HR, get them to write you a letter saying, hey, for the foreseeable future, we don't intend to lay this person off. Exactly. Exactly. And this is if you're not, uh, you know, deemed an essential service. And I mean, there's a long list of it. But for example, if you're, if you happen to still be working in a coffee shop or a restaurant that's doing some takeout, the first thing they're going to look at is, well, you're in a, you're in a business that's most of them have closed. So what are the chances you're going to, you know, your employment is going to continue? So obviously it's a, it's a lot different than it was and it's much more stricter than it was. Well, the, yeah, and for, the other thing I, I just want to throw in with that, Blair, sorry, um, is the is the idea that um, your employer is kind of sticking their neck out in a in a in a very physical way by writing that, stating that down on paper uh, that this person won't be um, won't be let go, and and not all employers are going to be willing to do that, especially in small to medium sized businesses who are just kind of going day to day and not sure if they're going to be able to hang in or not. I think, uh, Elaine, it's more about the communication. I've seen lenders, you know, they're wording that we don't foresee this happening. I mean, if you were legally pressed, you would say, well, listen, I didn't foresee it happening, but then all of a sudden it happened. I think it's more about the lenders reaching out, wanting to have a bit of communication with the owner of the company or HR, just to get a better feeling that this type of employment, which isn't deemed essential, is something that realistically is likely going to stay around. Okay, cool enough. And the other thing I'll just throw in there too is that, you know, every day and, and things are changing and, and every week things are changing. And now we're looking at some possible loosening up of some of those really strict rules about who can work and who can't be working. So it's very much in flux, this whole, this whole idea of employment for so many people. Well, I think it isn't unlike these uh, special programs that have been that have been bought out by the government. They they've been changing, you know, almost day by day. So really, this is like I said, there's no blueprint for this. It's something no. that's uh, you know, it's changing on an ongoing basis. So yeah, I mean, we're we're sort of on the fly here, moving. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting too, you know, for a lot of people at mortgage renewal time, is that when the banks are going to be, you know, putting again the more fine tooth comb, the wanting the employment confirmation and the no layoff and things like that. So I understand now for refinance, but I wonder if there will be a bigger impact, um, you know, around renewal times too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
like Elaine Sangler, like we don't know. I mean, it's 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 nothing like this has ever happened. So we're sort of guessing and saying, you know what, the the banks are coming up with different rules. Uh, everything's changing on the fly. So I don't know. It's you know you kind of have to go with what you got right now and sort of see if it works. Wow. Yeah, Mark, we've just got a couple minutes left here. I know we wanted to talk about as well. So if someone tries to refinance and they're not able to do that with their existing lender, uh, you've indicated there's other options that are available to them. Can you start to talk through that? If someone you know has, has been frustrated in going to you know the current mortgage holder, what could they potentially do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, lots of people have been affected by this. And for the most part, if you have and you can prove it, there's a deferral process. But there still may be reasons why you want to take money out of your home. And over and above being able to defer your payment, you may need a lump sum. And if the bank isn't allowing you to do that, we have the ability to do second mortgages. And what a lot of the lenders have done that are in that second mortgage uh, type of um, lending platform is they're capitalizing the payments. So they understand that if you've been affected, you're not able to make the monthly payments. So they're basically prepaying it so that you could get this money out by way of a second mortgage. They capitalize the payment so that your your actually your monthly cash flow isn't affected, and it, and yet you still get the money. So there's there's and the, and the main thing Blair is that the the red tape or the the actual qualifying is only about equity. So as long as you've got the equity in your home, that's the priority that uh, lenders are looking for in order, in order to determine your ability in, to qualify for a second mortgage. And what would be the downside of something like that? I assume it's just the higher cost of the debt? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're in second position, so your rate's higher than your first mortgage. But I mean, it comes down to numbers. And that's where, you know, I sit down with my clients. Okay, what do you need it for? Is it actually going to eliminate, say, some higher interest rate debt? Um, so at the end of the day, it comes down to numbers. Like, why do you, and obviously, you've got, you've got choices. You can sell your home and you could take the equity out. Or you don't do anything and you keep doing what you're doing, or you do the second mortgage. So we have to look at what's the advantage of doing the second mortgage based on what it's going to cost you. But the option's there. Excellent. We're down to about our last 30 seconds or so, Mark. Just wonder if you have any final pieces of advice for anyone out there. You know, they're sitting with some equity. They're wondering what they should do. Um, you know, we've been saying, you know, stay calm, make your decisions, you know, in the, in the clear light of day. But there's probably some good advice people could reach out to someone like yourself to get, right? Well, you know, absolutely, Blair. You know, it's all about speaking to someone who, you know, who's in this business and understands it and, you know, getting that correct information because it's only when you have that information that you can make better decisions. So if someone is considering it, you know what, it doesn't cost you anything to make the call and to get the information. And then at least now you know and you can make an informed decision. Great. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Mark's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network. You can reach him at www.advancedequity.ca. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.